We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. This is Blue Wire. Hey, this is George Kittle, and you're listening to Candlestick Chronicles. What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to Candlestick Chronicles, the 49ers podcast on the Blue Wire Network. I'm Chris Biederman. I cover the 49ers for the Sacramento Bee. With me again, as always, it's Kyle Madsen of Niners Wire of the USA Today Sports Media Group. Kyle, how was your weekend? It was terrific, man. I went wine tasting out in Napa, which was wonderful. I think this is back-to-back weekends I've gone wine tasting. I do other things with my time. It just so happened that two good wine tasting weekends lined up. No, you're just you're just super bougie. I, <laughs> I'm <laughs> a bit of a that. wino. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, so so no, it was good. It's it's hard to complain when you get to hang out with your girlfriend and your families and uh, drink a lot of good wine. Yeah, that's cool. Um I got rained on a lot. I went out to uh, my buddy just had his his second child, or actually his wife did. And uh and yeah, I got to meet her. Got to meet little Zoe Weinstein. This was a uh, a college roommate of mine, really good friend. So hung out with him Saturday, and of course Sunday, watch Game of Thrones, which we're going to talk about uh, at the end of this podcast. So if you uh, if you can't get enough of our OTA 49ers talk, stick around a little bit later, and we'll we'll break down the ending of Game of Thrones. Uh, but there will be, full, be full spoilers and a spoiler warning before we dive into Game of Thrones. Yeah, so don't get mad at us. Um, First, uh, there was some news out of Washington today. Reuben Foster, during his first practice rep during OTAs after getting reinstated off the commissioner's exempt list, has reportedly torn an ACL and is going to be done for the season. Um, Kyle, you, you have quick thoughts on, on Reuben Foster's injury? Yeah, you feel bad to see it happen this early in the offseason. It's like you said, is he had his charges dropped from his incident in Tampa. So he was off the commissioner's exempt list in time to start OTAs. 
and gets one play into OTAs. I saw two, and then I also saw three, but he got a couple of plays into OTAs and tears his ACL. And they also think, I saw J.P. Finlay of NBC Sports Washington report that they're also afraid of possible artery damage, which could be really serious. So, yeah, you just hope that he makes a full recovery and there's nothing long-term uh, that damages his his leg or his ability to kind of live a life. Yeah, so, so I guess from the 49ers perspective, and, and I don't know if like these ACL injuries are, are ticking time bombs, so to speak. I, I know that's probably a terrible way to phrase it, but like we don't know if, if Foster remained with the 49ers, if, if an ACL tear was inevitable or, or if something like this was just a freak accident on a football field because these dudes are massive and they're moving it incredible speeds and changing directions and things like that. But you have to wonder just given his overall durability issues, aside from the off the field stuff, you know, he had, uh, he had an ankle injury early on in his rookie season. He had recurring shoulder injuries throughout after having shoulder surgery before his draft, there were just a bunch of question marks regarding his durability. And obviously this is a huge step back for him. So uh, you don't want to wish ill will on anybody and you hope that Reuben Foster can recover from this thing, and and um and hopefully he he remains in a good mental state about it. But um but this is a 49ers podcast. Obviously, Reuben Foster is no longer a member of the 49ers. Uh, so let's talk about OTAs. They're starting this week. The 49ers are going to be on the practice field. All 90 players, uh, well, actually 89 players, I guess, with the exception of Robbie Gold, who is expected to continue his time away from the team after demanding a trade. Um, but everyone, it's the first, uh, it's the first time all the, the entire roster is going to be on the field practicing together. It's phase two of the program. So it's not going to be there any offense or defense. Uh, we're, we're recording this Monday on Tuesday. We're scheduled to the media is scheduled to watch practice. Um, but it's looking like weather could impact that. Maybe that gets pushed back till Wednesday. We'll let you guys know when we know. Um, but we're going to, we're going to break down sort of five storylines to preview OTAs. And this is going to be kind of a broad discussion, not necessarily pertaining to this week, but things we're looking for as the offseason progresses heading into the start of training camp at the end of July. So the first one uh, is pretty obvious and pretty simple. What's going on with Jimmy Garoppolo? Where is he going to be practicing? Is he going to be on the side field doing rehab stuff? Uh, is, he, is he going to be warming up with his teammates, throwing, participating in individual drills? Uh, we don't really know. What we do know about Garoppolo to this point is that in his spare time, uh, he has been throwing with, with you know, pass catchers and, and skill position players on the practice field. Kyle Shanahan and John Lynch have both talked about, you know, looking outside their, their windows onto the practice field and seeing Garoppolo doing that with Jarek McKinnon and, and other guys like that. But we, we still don't really know what Garoppolo's workload is going to be like at in the early portion of the offseason program. There's there's a belief that he might be in line for seven on seven throughout OTAs, maybe during June, uh, June's mandatory session in the final phase of the offseason program. That's when Garoppolo is inserted into seven on seven drills where he doesn't have to worry about any linemen being around him or obviously any pass rushers, things like that. Um, so that's really the biggest question. Where's Garoppolo with his knee? How is he feeling? How's his chemistry with the team's pretty much, you know, new look group of pass catchers, uh, everything like that? Yeah, I think that's going to be the storyline. Like if we're whittling this list of five down to one, I think the Garoppolo storyline is really 
going to carry over not just through OTAs, but that's going to be something to watch through training camp and even through the preseason and into the first few weeks, seeing how he's able to drop back on that repaired ACL. We've mentioned before, it's not as, I don't want to say not as serious, but it's different recovering for a quarterback than it is for like a linebacker or a running back who relies so much on change of direction. So that'll be something to watch throughout the offseason, but certainly in OTAs, because like you said, getting that time with the new pass catchers, his new tight ends, receivers, running backs is going to be so vital, um, especially in this offense and, and making sure that he's able to really hit the ground running, so to speak, when, when he is back on the field in games that count. And if Garoppolo is not working out with his teammates during these practices, who's getting those first team reps and how are those reps between Nick Mullins and CJ Beathard getting divvied up? I think what Kyle Shanahan has said is is they're on equal playing ground, right? They're they're on equal footing when it comes to competing to be the primary backup to Garoppolo once Garoppolo is healthy. And how these guys play is going to be uh, crucial throughout the offseason program because there's a very real chance that one of them ends up not on the team. And um, I don't think the 49ers would be able to sneak either of these guys back to the practice squad. So you're looking at a scenario where maybe – if somebody plays, you know, if both these guys play really well, but the 49ers can only keep one, maybe it's Nick Mullins. I mean, it could be Beathard too, but um, maybe they trade one of these guys. And we've talked about Denver a little bit because of the Rich Gangarello connection. Uh, you know, obviously quarterback is a premium position. And if the 49ers only keep two, then it would make sense for them to trade their their third guy, uh, maybe for, you know, a mid-round pick, a late-round pick, something like that, rather than cutting them, trying to sneak them onto the practice squad and losing them for nothing if they get claimed off waivers. So obviously quarterback, really, really significant uh, development throughout the offseason when it comes to Garoppolo's rehab and things like that. So that's obviously going to be the the thing that's first and foremost on our minds when, when we're on the practice field uh, this week, when, if it's, you know, whether or not it's Tuesday or Wednesday. Uh, number two, uh, the second biggest storyline of the offseason has to be the two pass rushers the team added. It, you, you draft Nick Bosa number two overall. You sign D Ford and, and give him a massive $87.5 million contract over the next five years. Um, where are these guys lining up? How are they looking? Uh, what's the defense looking like? How how are they getting coached? Uh, what are they getting asked to improve upon? Is the wide nine going to be significantly different than what they than what the team did last year? Is it going to be, um, are there going to, are they going to be working on a lot of two man games? How are these guys going to play next to the Forrest Buckner? Things like that. It's really going to be our first opportunity to get any sort of look as to how these guys are getting deployed. And earlier this month, uh, Nick Bosa participated in rookie minicamp, but was really limited to individual drills and didn't partake in the 11 on 11 stuff because it was his first you know, real football actions in September with Ohio State. So is he further along and getting back into shape? And and is the team going to feel comfortable playing him with real NFL players rather than a bunch of tryout guys, uh, you know, who might be clumsy or things like that? They they didn't want to risk in re-injuring, Bosa re-injuring himself while playing with these with these guys. Um, so, you know, what's his workload like? How's D Ford looking? Is he as fast as as he looked last season with the Chiefs? Uh, everything like that. I, I think the pass rushers clearly behind behind Jimmy Garoppolo in the quarterback situation. That's the biggest storyline, the second biggest storyline of the 49ers offseason. Yeah, they have to they have to improve at that spot. Those two guys are the players that they invested heavy resources in to go sack the quarterback and make opposing quarterbacks uncomfortable. So how they come out of the gate is obviously important. 
I think from their standpoint, though, I think no news on those guys is, is probably good news. Like, if they're just out there and they're just kind of doing their thing, for OTAs, I think that's fine. Because once the pads come on, that's when it's really going to matter. Once they start getting into training camp, once they start getting into live drills, that's when it's we're really going to see kind of where these guys are at. So I think early on, as long as they're out there staying healthy, I think that's the best thing you can really hope for. But it would be nice to see them come out early on and really set a tone of, hey, the Niners invested heavily in these two guys, and they came out right away and were showing why they paid Ford so much money and spent the number two overall pick on Bosa. But I also don't think it's the end of the world if we get through OTAs and it's just kind of like, yep, they were out there. Right. I mean, OTAs essentially are are just to make sure everyone's in shape, to make sure everyone's getting a grasp with their responsibilities, whether that's a playbook or schemes or whatever. Um, getting into good practice habits, getting familiar with their surroundings, everything like that. It's not what what happens on the practice field is far less important this time of year than than what we're going to see in July in July and August right. uh, when when training camp first starts. So, storyline number three: uh, What's going on with all of the injured dudes? Uh, where's Jarek McKinnon at in in his recovery from his torn ACL? Uh, is are, is a team finally going to give a timetable on Quan Alexander? When are we going to know uh, when to expect him to play? Is he going to be back at some point in August, or is is the team waiting? Is is the team waiting until maybe you know after the bye week, week five, to to activate him off an injured list? Is he going to practice at all this summer? We really have no idea. So maybe um, you know we're going to talk to Kyle Shanahan this week. So maybe we can get. An update on that. There's obviously Weston Richburg, who had knee and quad surgery. Lake and Tomlinson, who, who tore his MCL in the season finale. Uh, DJ Reed had shoulder surgery. What's his status? Jason Verrett, obviously coming back off the Achilles tear suffered last July. How active a participant is he going to be during the offseason program? Um, Jimmy Ward, I assume that he's going to be a full go after fracturing his wrist. Uh, so, you know, there, there are all sorts of injury concerns you have with this team. And, and we talked a little bit about it before we started recording that just overall, like health and injuries and, and getting guys available and at a hundred percent is really going to be the biggest story for the 49ers entire season. And, and obviously you have to throw Jimmy Garoppolo under that umbrella, but you're talking about a lot of impact players that have injury concerns. And obviously it's football, it's a physical game. And, and very few people have, you know, uh, completely clean injury resumes. But um, th- there are a lot of key players that that are dealing with things, and the 49ers completely revamped their training staff. So uh, I think that has to be really the biggest development in 2019. Because if their best players are injured throughout the year again, after the 49ers use injured reserve over 40 times these last two seasons, um, they're really going to have a hard time competing for a playoff spot. I think the other thing in regards to Alexander is who is taking the reps instead of him. Yeah. Because it's he's not going to be on the field for OTA, so who's getting those reps? It'll probably be Elijah Lee early on, but Dre Greenlaw is one of the rookies we talked about who mm-hmm. might snag that starting job if Quan Alexander has to miss time. So I'm going to be very interested to see who gets the snaps early in OTAs, how they're divvying those up, and seeing how Greenlaw is kind of progressing because I think there's a real shot that that he does play if Quan Alexander can start the year. Hey Kyle. Hey Chris. Harry's Razors is helping Blue Wire listeners with a better what? shaving experience. 
that sounds awesome. You can go to harrys.com slash bluewire to save $10 on a value trial set, which includes a five-blade razor with a lubricating strip and trimmer blade, a rich lathering shave gel, and a travel blade cover. Enough with the cheap razors. Go to Harry's now. It's just $3 for our loyal listeners. Harry's has fixed shaving by combining a simple, clean design with quality and durable blades at a fair price. Harry's founders were tired of paying for razors that were overpriced and overdesigned. Harry's bought a world-class blade factory in Germany that's been making quality blades for over 95 years. Join the 10 million who have tried Harry's. Claim your trial offer by going to harrys.com slash bluewire. All of Harry's blades come with a 100% quality guarantee. If you don't love your shave, let them know and you'll they'll give you a full refund. Again, make sure you go to harrys.com slash bluewire to redeem your razor for just $3. This is Mike McGlinchey of the San Francisco 49ers and you're listening to the Candlestick Chronicles. Okay, so storyline number four, heading into OTAs. What's the depth chart looking like in the secondary? Uh, We've talked a lot about the secondary and the fact that the 49ers feel completely different about the group that they have than... Uh, than maybe outside perception. Um, so, you know, who's playing free safety? Is it going to be Jimmy Ward or Adrian Colbert? Uh, who's who's starting at cornerback opposite Richard Sherman? Obviously, we mentioned Jason Verrett and his injury concerns. Uh, how's Akella Witherspoon looking? How's Tervarius Moore developing after really playing cornerback for the first time last season after playing uh, safety in college? Is Jaquaski Tart the starting strong safety, or is the team going to give him another look at free safety like it did to start last season? Uh, or actually two seasons ago when Ward was banged up with a hamstring injury. And does that mean Marcel Harris might have an inside track at a starting job at strong safety? Um, So there are really tons of questions in the secondary. And and this week of OTAs will give us our first opportunity to sort of see how the team is sifting through all the players that they have back there. The thing that's so fascinating for me about the players in the secondary is how they perform this year is going to be a pretty big indictment on the 49ers front office because they really bet on this group, right? Like they said they added Tim Harris and then effectively have – and Jason Barrett. And then they effectively have the same players to compete for the jobs that they weren't very good at last year. So they went in and, – and then you have other guys like, like Tart and Ward who have battled injuries their whole career. You basically have John Lynch saying, look, we think we have the talent here. We've evaluated these guys. We've seen them play. We think that there is a starting caliber secondary in this group. We've just got to figure out who they are through competition and getting the talent level to rise. So if they come back this year and the secondary is bad again, even with an improved pass rush, I think that reflects pretty poorly on the front office because they have made that decision to – they had – multiple chances to use early draft picks on on defensive backs they could have spent in that position in in free agency and they elected not to in both cases so I'm very intrigued to see how an actual competition for starting jobs works out among this group because I'm not sure there's not starting quality players there but if there isn't uh, the Niners front office is going to have some questions to answer Right. And so after the draft, I asked Kyle Shanahan and John Lynch this in in a press conference because 
you know, a year ago at this time, we were talking about, well, the 49ers had huge issues along the edges at pass rush, and they didn't invest in a pass rusher in the draft, and they didn't really do anything in free agency outside of Jeremiah Tauchu, who didn't wind up making the team. Um, so I asked, is this like a year-to-year thing? Do you say, okay, this offseason, are we going to do the pass rush? Next offseason, we're going to do the secondary. Uh, and they both said no. They both said, look, we like what we have. Uh, we we really like Jimmy Ward. We really like Jason Verrett. Obviously, those guys have have huge injury concerns. Um, I, I just don't necessarily believe that. Like, I think they are taking this approach to where they're going to address one area this offseason and then the next area next offseason. And obviously, that's maybe a luxury you that's afforded to you when you have, um, I, I mean, almost unlimited job security. I think, you know, Kyle Shanahan, Kyle Shanahan has 100% job security right now. I don't know if we could say the same about John Lynch. And I think ultimately that's Kyle Shanahan's call, but nothing that Kyle Shanahan has said publicly would indicate John Lynch is, is in any sort of trouble in terms of his employment. But when, when you have six, when you have a coach and GM working on six year contracts, I, I think it's, it's easy to see them taking you know taking this offseason to do the pass rush and then taking next offseason to do the secondary while in the meantime they get a year to see really another year to see what they have with Akella Witherspoon, Tarverius Moore, um, Jaquaski Tart, and Jimmy Ward uh, to see if the if things can finally click because from a pure talent perspective like uh, we've seen it from Witherspoon we've seen it in in spurts obviously very abbreviated spurts with Jimmy Ward and we've seen it with Jason Verrett who was a pro bowler for the one season that he was really healthy uh, like these guys can play they physically they have the skills to play at a high level and be impact starters but we haven't seen it from them yet and that's the big bet the 49ers are making and ultimately I'm in 100% agreement with you is that that decision to more or less ignore the secondary or at least invest minimal resources in it rather than the huge resources they invested in the pass rush. That's going to be the decision that ultimately defines this offseason for them. And if the secondary and pass defense is the reason the 49ers aren't in the playoffs in 2019, then I think it's fair to, to really ramp up the heat on this regime in terms of how they're building this thing out. Um, but if it if it works, if they do get a, 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 a random, unexpected, healthy season from from Jimmy Ward and Jason Verrett and they play at high levels, then, you know, then we're all going to be saying that Kyle Shanahan and John Lynch were ballsy for taking chances on those guys when conventional wisdom suggested otherwise. But from my standpoint, seeing how injuries have really impacted the last two seasons and the fact that these guys haven't really done it before. And the fact you, you basically have an entirely new training staff. I don't know that taking all these risks on injured players at such an important position in the secondary, um, really makes sense for them. But, but if, if they like, I guess what I'm saying is I would give them more benefit of the doubt if they flat out came out and said, you know, we're taking this thing year by year in terms of we're going to invest our resources, fix the pass rush this spring like they did with right. D4 and Nick Bosa. And then next year, OK, we're really going to take inventory of what we have in the secondary. And if uh, if a premium veteran comes on the market, then we'll pay top dollar for them. Because, I mean, a lot of people were like, hey, get Earl Thomas and you you have this secondary thing solved. And, and I think we were both in that camp, but they just decided not to do that. And maybe it was just because. 
they didn't want to spend all that money on on an aging player. But yeah, that that's that's ultimately going to be the decision of the offseason, in my opinion. I agree. Okay, uh, number five, final storyline. How quickly are the rookies getting up to speed? So we mentioned Nick Bosa. Um, obviously, Debo Samuel is going to be a very important player to Kyle Shanahan's offense going forward. Where is he early at in the process? Are they throwing him right into the fire as the starting Z receiver, or is that still going to be Kendrick Bourne? Where is Jalen Hurd going to be used? Obviously, he's starting his NFL career as a receiver, but are they already incorporating him into other roles like H-back or tight end? Um, it's been written about, I think we mentioned it last week, Matt Barrows wrote a piece for The Athletic diving into Jalen Hurd and and coming out of that were, you know, a lot of coaches and, and people associated with him in college saying he had a work ethic that was second to none and that uh, really shone through during his transition from running back to receiver at Baylor. So is his work ethic good enough for him to already have a good uh, understanding of the offense as a, as a slot receiver or H back tight end, those type of things. Um, and then all the other guys, we mentioned Dre Greenlaw, um, Tim Harris, the cornerback is how, how in the mix is he going to be for a starting spot? Um, is Mitch, Mitch Wisnowski punting the hell out of the ball? I would imagine he would be, um, you know, there's Justin school, Caden Smith, Tim Harris. How are these guys getting ingratiated? Where are they lining up? Um, how realistic of a chance do some of these guys have at starting? How firm is their grasp on, on so roster Jalen spots? Is We're all going to get I'm our sort of preview for that uh, this week when we you know, get to practice. And really where he's lining up. Like, do, do they have him dive in right away? Like you just said, do they have him diving into other responsibilities right away? Or do they really want him to get something down, like out of the slot first? Like, here, get, get this information down. Learn your job at this spot, and then we'll start moving you around because how he develops, I think, could really unlock a lot of things for this 49ers offense. I'm super intrigued to see how he does. I would also like to see a fully healthy Dante Pettis after a full NFL offseason. And then the same thing goes, uh, what you were saying about Debo Samuel and Kendrick Bourne is, can Kendrick Bourne take that step that says because really this this season is probably an audition for him and his future in San Francisco I think at least a little bit if he can emerge as a credible like fourth or fifth option I think he might find his way onto the 49ers receiving core long term but if he still comes out this year and is just kind of a very small bit player who falls behind Pettis and Marquise Goodwin and and Debo Samuel and Jalen Hurd and maybe even see uh, Trent Taylor or Jordan Matthews or whoever getting snaps over him, I think that might spell the end of his time in San Francisco. But then, just like I said just now, the opposite could also occur where he really takes a step forward and and impresses the Niners coaching staff and finds a way into a real role in the offense. And I think that would start in OTAs if he can get some early snaps and really produce early on. Yeah, and it's worth remembering with Kendrick Bourne specifically – when you're an undrafted rookie, you sign a three-year contract. Uh, you know, so he's he's entering a contract year. So obviously, not only is he trying to show out to win a roster spot in a really competitive and and crowded receiving core, or is he auditioning for a team elsewhere, or has he played well enough to maybe become a possible trade candidate? You know, may, could the 49ers flip him 
at final cuts, you know, maybe to a team like um, the Rams or Packers or Broncos, a team that's, you know, that's going to run a similar system to what the 49ers do. Are they going to have interest in giving the 49ers maybe a, a six round pick or a seventh round pick, something like that for, for Kendrick Bourne? I think that's something that's always worthwhile um, rather than just cutting a guy and losing him for nothing. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I think uh, I'm with you on herd. Like it's it's going to be really interesting to uh, to see how he's used. And we've talked about it a lot, but he's really going to be one of the more intriguing players on offense the 49ers are going to have. Uh, and it, it all starts in, in OTAs. And, and then we'll we'll get a better idea once the pads come on in training camp and, and the preseason games in August. The other thing I really want to see in OTAs from the receivers is who's playing what positions. Because Kyle Shanahan spoke about at owners meetings per Chris Biederman of the Sacramento Bee, talked about versatility with with the receivers, making sure that guys aren't playing just one spot, making sure players can do multiple things. And so I want to see early on, is Debo lining up in the slot? Is he lining up outside? Uh, same goes for Dante Pettis. Is he lining up in multiple spots? So I'd, I'd be very interested to see what what kind of versatility they're they're working with at receiver early on. Yeah, it's going to be interesting. So that's it. Um, that's all the 49ers talk we're going to have on this episode. Later this week, after we watch practice, the first OTA's practice that is open to media, we will have a recap episode. Um, of that practice and and probably dive into all of these storylines uh, in further detail because we'll know what is happening on the practice field, or at least we'll have a better idea now. Um, so tune in for that later this week. We're going to talk about Game of Thrones right now. Um, we're going to spoil it. So if you have not seen the final episode or aren't interested in the show, we will talk to you guys later. Please subscribe, rate, and review. Uh, wherever you get your podcasts on the Blue Wire Network, um, and yeah, so Kyle, what, what were your first thoughts of the of the of the finale? Because I guess where I'm coming from, and this isn't a unique thought because a lot of people have said this, but it just seems like for me, the destination of where where all these characters ended up is is mostly okay, but the mechanics of how we got there felt incredibly rushed, and I really wish these last two seasons were 10 episodes instead of seven episodes and then six episodes, just like a lot of stuff happened and we had arrived at a lot of interesting places. But what the show has been so good at is making traveling to all these interesting places through character development and plot development and things like that. Really interesting. Whereas Mm -hmm. everything felt super rushed these last two seasons. Right. The first six seasons were very dialogue heavy. Like you were supposed to discern things through the dialogue. And these last couple seasons, it became much more heavy handed in terms of characters saying, I'm going to do A, B and C now, and then going and doing those things. Or uh, the opposite of that, where they jumped from point A to point Z and never filled in the middle, which is what we got so used to with the show. And I think you said it on Twitter either today or last night. Like the show sets such a high standard for itself that the fact that these last two seasons were basically movies, like they were making movies on a weekly basis, like they were beautiful and and it, they were they were so gripping. But we went into it as as fans expecting a certain type of show, and they really diverged from that over the last two seasons. And I understand why. I understand that if 
if uh, Weiss and Benioff were just kind of over it and wanted to move on to different things. But that really sucks for fans because there was a really great story to tell. And I'm, I'm with you that even if they were, there were three more episodes to, to fill in some of, the, some of the very vital gaps, I think it would have been great. As far as last night, though, I knew that timing was going to be an issue. Like, they literally just skipped four weeks. <laughs> right. Um, Jon Snow kills Daenerys Targaryen and like after she destroys King's Landing. And then it's like, all right, it's been a month, and now we're having this council meeting, and we're going to elect a new king. Yeah, just so, yeah. So, there was a lot of stuff just glossed over there. Like they they could have really creatively sort of figured out a, a post Daenerys political struggle that would have been far more complex and far more interesting than just everybody going to the dragon pit and having a council meeting and just sort of solving it in ten minutes instead of like over the course of three episodes through a series of like backstabbing and politics and death and assassination, right. like everything that we loved about game of Thrones, all that minutia was basically lost. And that's not to say that the spectacle of these last two seasons wasn't incredible. Like visually and technically, I thought it was like the best TV I've ever seen with mm-hmm. just from a writing and storytelling perspective and sort of like skipping through all these different aspects of the character arcs. Like, I thought they were missing a lot. Like I never bought the idea that Jon Snow and Danny loved each other. Like they didn't take any time to develop that relationship. And it was just something where it's like, all right, these guys have been through a lot. She went North of the wall to save him. And he was really appreciated, appreciative of that. And now they love each other. And like their love was such an important part of the story that the fact that he pushed back from her when he could tell she was going a little bit crazy, like, that really broke her, but it wasn't really apparent. Like it wasn't a, it wasn't a, uh, an easy sell because none of us could really buy into the relationship because there wasn't any time devoted to explaining why that relationship was important. Right. Like, like Jamie and Brianne's relationship evolved over like seasons and was like super interesting and compelling because it was like years in the making. And there were a bunch yeah. of others uh, like like Arya and the Hound had a super interesting relationship because they went through so much together. And it felt like Jon Snow and Danny could have had a relationship like that, but we just didn't get the time to see it develop. Yeah, like when he puts that knife through her. You can see it coming from a mile away, by the way. Yeah. He walks yeah. into that room with his sword and his dagger. And the dagger, yeah, and they feature them prominently. Like, right, it wasn't like when he when he kissed her. My girlfriend goes, "Oh my god, stab her!" <laughs> like, <laughs> and then and then he did it. But when that knife goes in, that should be. I was never buying for one second that he that she was going to leave that scene alive. But if what you had just said, if we had had multiple seasons of seeing their relationship evolve and really see them be deeply in love. That would have been much harder to buy going in. Like, oh my God, what is he going to do? Right. Like, he loves her. He has shown that he loves her and he would do all this stuff for her. But, you know, what? so what's he going to put first? The, is he going to be the shield that guards the realms of men? Or is he going to be, you know, Danny's nephew and husband guy? And we just knew that he was going to kill her in that moment. Because their relationship hadn't been fleshed out enough to justify him doing anything else. Right. And that kind of sucks. Right. And- but... Oh, go ahead. On the other side, 
I knew that pacing was going to be a problem. It has been. So I just went into last night. I was like, I'm just going to absorb this and just kind of take it for what it is. And I enjoyed it fine. And this is not in the Kyle Madsen original take, but I think this show is going to age much better than it did in the moment. Yeah, I think that's true. And I, I think the bar the, the bar was set so high for itself that like the show was so popular and so such like an incredible talking point that really like half the people who watch the show were going to be pissed off no matter how it ended. I feel like it was just that popular. Like if if everything you know if Jon Snow ended on ended up on the throne and it was like happily ever after and a basically like a Disney ending, then you would have had the people like half the people wanting for a more subversive ending because, you know, the show had the red wedding and you had Cersei blowing up the, uh, the religious temple and all of these things that were like totally unexpected. So Pete, so the show would have been criticized for being too, uh, too formulaic. Right. Whereas if they would have gone the complete opposite direction and say, everybody died, and then, like, the Prince of Dorne, who was, like, not introduced at all, ended up on the throne or something like that, going, like, the subversive route, then everybody wanting a storybook ending would have been upset. So I, I yeah. think the bar was set so high that there really was, like, no winning and there's no easy way to end this thing. But, like, some of the details after John kills her, like, okay, so who's pissed that John kills her? Like, like Grey Worm and the Unsullied and then oh. Jar from the Iron Islands. And like you would think that after Danny completely destroys this capital city and commits basically genocide that Jon Snow might have been like heralded for being a hero. But like nobody stands up for him and then Grey Worm's pissed off at him for killing Danny. And so is so is the Iron Islands chick. And then like he's banished when like he's really the the heir to the, like technically the heir to the throne. And like committed this heroic act of like saving everybody from this tyrant, but no one acknowledges that it was a heroic act. Like it was really weird. Like I thought it would have been a lot cooler if, say, like Arya did like the face swapping thing with like say she killed Grey Worm, swapped his face on, and then killed Danny as Grey Worm. Like that would have been awesome. That's what I thought was happening. That was my prediction. And then you have like. Jon Snow like being at conflict with his sisters because they just killed the love of his life and then he exiles himself to the north I thought that would have been a lot more compelling than just like like him making that decision would have been a lot more interesting than them just being like okay you're banished but then like Grey Worm leaves like he leaves Westeros to go to and takes the other unsullied to like go free slaves elsewhere and it's like wait so why is Jon banned like he, he saves everybody from Danny, and then they're like, "Nope, you gotta you gotta go in the north because Grey Worm's pissed." Like it, that that part didn't make any sense. Yeah, they didn't want war with the Unsullied, so they kind of made this compromise. And when Tyrion's like, "It's a compromise nobody liked," which you know I guess makes it a good compromise. But what I want to know is like, why was Grey Worm even following these rules? Like, if Grey Worm wanted those cats dead, like he could have just just iced them and right. gone on with his life. So I don't, yeah, there were, there was, there are so many confusing things and I feel like we could spend an hour talking about it, but what it comes down to for me is Game of Thrones is one of my favorite television shows of all time. Last two seasons aside, it was gripping and compelling and visually stunning. 
And I think it will go down despite all the criticism in the moment. It's going to go down as one of the like four or five best television shows ever. Oh yeah. No question. One last thing. And I agree with everything you just said. I I don't think the last two seasons are going to diminish, diminish how good the first six seasons were, but, um, Bran as the King, first of all, I'm fine with it. Like I, I sort of expected it because he's omnipotent basically, or at least they portray him to be omnipotent. And I would think it would be smart to have the one omnipotent human run everything because he won't make any bad decisions because he knows everything, but they never explain his powers. And yes, it, it's sort of like John and Danny's relationship in the sense that like, we never got to see it evolve. We never got his powers explained. Like how valuable is being a warg? All we know is that he can, he can warg into uh, a dire wolf when he needs to, he can work into some Ravens and, and go find the night King, even though that doesn't necessarily help anything. Uh, I was expect like I was kind of hoping he would work into the dragon, and then like he sort of becomes this all powerful being who can literally control the dragon without having to ride it, and then he sort of like yeah. that gives that gives his his I guess claim to the throne a lot more validity. Like if you were looking at it, like well, there's this omnipotent guy who can con- control dragons, like that would be that's a good king to have, I would think. But instead. They never explain his powers. Like, can he see into the future? We don't know. We know he can see into the past, but how is being able to see in the past going to help him be the leader of the seven kingdoms? Like that was never really explained. And, and like, I see, I see how you can get there, but it's just like you skipped over so much of it. And so I would love to know exactly how brand, how brand's powers are going to help him lead because I can make the connections myself, but they didn't, the show didn't explain any of that. Um, yeah. They, they had that, they had that weird scene with Tyrion and Bran where Tyrion sidles up next to Bran and he's like, Hey, tell me about you. Right. And then they cut away from it and they're expecting that scene to carry the entire weight of Tyrion picking him to rule the seven kingdoms and, or six kingdoms, I guess yeah. to rule the rule, the six kingdoms and saying hey he has this great story believe me right like no like what did he say like what did we learn there what did so yeah i I, i'm i'm with you there it's tough choice yeah like like i said i'm good with him being on the throne but you you could have done so much more to explain why that's that's the right decision instead of just assuming like oh he's he's all knowing so he's the right guy like we don't know what he knows and we don't know how useful his powers actually are but if he would have done something like warged into the dragon and then him melting the throne and maybe killing Danny, you know, that way or something would have been like super interesting and subversive and like a unique power play. But really, like the deaths weren't all that spectacular, right? Like the the show that that had the Red Wedding and Oberyn Martell getting his head crushed by the mountain, like it's it sort of these some of these main characters went out with like kind of a whimper and like you know like it would have been awesome to see like i said aria you do switch faces with gray worm and then gray worm sticks danny or uh the dragon taken over by bran as a war kills danny or something like that i mean there's so many there there were a bunch of tools in the toolbox that that they could have gone to but they just didn't and that's not to say i don't love i don't I, I don't agree with where they arrived, but I just think they needed more time in the in the form of more episodes to develop some of these storylines. 
But yeah, I, we're in agreement yeah, I that think, it's one of the best shows ever. And and I don't think yeah, these last two seasons really are going to tarnish it all that much. Yeah, and a little bit what happens is when you get into a fantasy story that the world is so wide and deep like this, you're going to have people who basically create their own version of the ending in their heads because we don't have an ending. The books aren't done. So you get people filling in their own endings based on what they know and how they've interpreted the world. And if somebody else interprets it differently or writes it differently, they're going to be disappointed by it because they've come up with an ideal ending. I hadn't gotten that far into it, so I enjoyed it. If that makes me a lame television watcher, then so be it. I don't think you're a lame television watcher. I think Thanks, I think man. we're speaking for a, a large contingent of of people who who enjoy the show without um, without being like overly critical or you know just understanding its its place in sort of television lore and and how it compares to everything else. Um, so I think that that's it. That's our Game of Thrones spiel. The show is over. Um, and uh, we will have an episode again later this week recapping 49ers OTAs. Thanks for sticking with us through the television talk. And uh, the Throndlestick Chronicles. The, the Throndlestick Chronicles. Maybe maybe the, the spinoff podcast coming later. <laughs> uh, we will talk to you guys soon. Thanks for listening. <laughs>